This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Let's get things started. I'd like to welcome everybody to this week's episode for TGIF DCT. I'm Craig Lipset. Thrilled to be here with my co-hosts Amir Kalali and Jane Miles as we talk this week about ChatGPT meaning DCT. That is a whole lot of acronyms to stuff into a TGIF DCT weekly episode. If you're new to this community, be sure to give a follow to the Decentralized Trials Club. You can tap Decentralized Trials at the top left of your screen. From the club page, you can get a glimpse of episodes that are coming up, what conversations we have in the queue. A few of them to keep in mind for uh, as kind of some show notes for the weeks ahead. Next week, we'll be gathering to talk about unmet needs for wearables in decentralized trials. We've certainly talked in the past about connected devices, wearables and sensors, and we're going to go deeper around some of the unmet needs there. And then the week after on Friday, February 10th, we're going to uh, shed some sunlight on one of the more popular initiatives that we have in DTRA and bring on some of the folks that have been helping to lead that work, talking about best practices and the best practices handbook at DTRA. Also, of course, replays are available, so if you are interested in any of the topics we've covered in the past, they're all available for you at the Decentralized Trials Club page. Amir, I feel like we've missed you the last uh, couple of weeks. You've been on the road yourself. Yeah, uh, as you know, I've just come back from uh, Patagonia and Antarctica, and it was a very um, uh, weird feeling being completely cut off from the internet, right? All I had was the penguins and whales in Antarctica, and I was thinking the staff that are there who are on the uh, ship are more like special forces, they actually spend the whole season down there without internet. So can you imagine you kind of start, you know, in September and by March, you kind of, you literally not had internet. I was just thinking about them thinking today's topic is kind of the opposite, which is they're going to come back from that season and go, what the hell is this thing that actually has had the fastest uptake of any technology ever? Uh, so I think the, those folks on that ship are going to be quite surprised about kind of how things are changing. I've never seen a technology have so much excitement around it, and some people might call it hype. Uh, so I think we mentioned that just the other week, and a lot of folks didn't know about it. So I made an attempt to do a primer on it, and we thought it was so interesting we should uh, actually devote a session to it. And I think just based on knowing how much uh, fun conversations we already had with Joe, Ritesh, and Jane, uh, I think we could spend the whole day on this. So <laughs> we just got to see what we can fit in within one hour. Uh, and that's sort of, uh, yeah, so good to be back from the off the grid world into 
the uh, world of high power speed in the technology. <laughs> great to have you back for sure. Um, and this should be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. As you mentioned, we have our uh, guest this week, Joe Dustin from Medible, Ritesh Patel from Finn Partners, and of course, always joined uh, by Jane. How are you today, Jane? I'm great, thanks. Over here in the fog in NorCal and curious to learn more about this new set of tools. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, well, to kick things off, why don't we say hello to our, our guest this week and then, Amir, maybe I'm bouncing back to you after we uh, we introduce our guest to see if you'd like to give uh, folks a little bit of a, a GPT-101 and what is this, this uh, large language uh, uh, you know, environment that that seems to be gathering so much momentum. Uh, but first, let's say hello to some of our guests. Joe Dustin, it is always a pleasure to have you. If anybody in the galaxy doesn't know you, Joe, why don't you introduce yourself and share a little bit of your curiosity on today's topic? Yeah, it feels like the galaxy is getting smaller and smaller every day. So happy Friday to you all. Um, hey, Craig, good to see you. And uh, my name is Joe Dustin. I'm a VP at, at Medible at the moment in been the clinical trials world for about 20 years. Um, I consider myself a bit of a, a bit of a geek, uh, but I like to play with a, a lot of different new technologies way early before they come out. Um, and, and sometimes when I'm surrounded by uh, fellow geeks, I feel like I'm behind the times, but this one here, it, it really caught my attention. Um, I, I've been sort of in this rabbit hole of chat GPT for the past month. And um, more and more, I'd show it to people and they're blown away by the stuff that could be done. And I'm just sort of obsessed with understanding what could be done here um, for good and, and what could be used. What, what, what could it do not only today in kind of the playful ways that we see today, but also what, what, uh, what could be done in the future in either public or private settings. Um, I also, uh, I'll be honest, being in clinical trials for a while, the past 10 years, we've heard a lot about AI about how it's supposed to change drug development and whatnot. And even at, at Amir, at, at seeing the summit, we've had whole AI tracks and various types of things. And I don't think really anyone understands what it means that are not in it every day. Uh, it, and I'll be honest, a lot of people think it's a bunch of buzzwords. What is AI gonna do? I don't get it. When this tool came out, a lot of people could touch it. They could see it and they're like, whoa, that's what it can do. And then the imagination runs wild, right? So I think this is a major point where people that have been working in AI for so long have, this is not new to them. And so I'm just so excited to talk about this kind of stuff with an open forum to see what else people are discovering. So thanks for having me today. That's a great point, Joe. We'll talk about that more, but you're exactly right. I think up to now, people didn't really see the practical applications necessarily. And this is a sort of a, a consumer facing thing. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point you bring up. Thank you. And, and for today's conversation, these are some of the themes we're going to drill down on, because I really want to understand not only what is this chat GPT thing, but how do we get beyond, is there a story beyond the hype? It's definitely a novelty and there's cool, fun things people are asking and posting and, and that's playful, but there's some real meat here and I want to get into what is that potential and what are some of the risks and the downsides that we're already starting to see in academia and other categories? What are some of the risks for some of these opportunities for us? Before we get there, though, I'm one of my favorite voices on all topics. Ritesh, how are you today? 
Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. I hope you guys are doing well. I mean, I, I saw the pictures you posted on LinkedIn, I think, uh, of your trip, and it looks just incredible. So glad you did it, and I'm glad to have you back. Uh, and thank you for joining me. I'd like to remind everybody to calm down. And here's why. You guys, I guarantee that everybody on this call has a Siri device on their phone, or they have a Google Home, or a Hey Google device in their houses. That's AI, guys. It's been used for a long, long time. Uh, so this is just the next inter iteration of what we've already got going. You've got automatic things. If you use Gmail, there's AI in the back of that. There's a Microsoft bot you can use to do all manner of tasks. That's AI. So we have it in our lives. And what I'd like to do is let's calm down a bit around this new chat GPT thing. And that's and to Amir's you know, conversation earlier, understand it. And then there's lots of things we can do with it. Uh, but I would like to remind everybody from a consumer perspective, we are surrounded by AI, our cars, uh, and primarily in the healthcare world, I can tell you, I see more doctors on rounds going, hey Siri on their phone to understand something than anything else. So it's already here. Yeah, but hey Siri can't tell me my differential diagnosis in the form of a rap. So I, I you know, Chat GPT is playful, Ritesh. Siri's most common response is, hey, I found a web page for you. <laughs> so as, 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 as does Google. But all I'm saying is AI has been around and it is being used around us. This is the next iteration of it. And yes, there are some great use cases of one of things like poems, you know, Snoop Dogg's rap in Shakespeare language. Yeah, so what? Hey Amir, why don't you uh, ground us a little bit? Do you do you have a, a couple wait, of wait, thoughts wait, on wait. sort of ChatGPT one hundred and one? Can we introduce Jane? Yeah. Jane is a regular Ritesh. Oh. Everyone here knows Jane. All right, all right. Sorry, <laughs> just want to be mindful. Thank she's you, Craig. Yes, over to you, Craig. Over to you, Craig. See, see, she's not a guest. She's a she's a permanent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, to get things going, first of all, uh, you know, I'm sure many people in this room are just as much expert as I am in this. So, but I'll do my best to do really just the basics. Um, so, as Joe and Ritesh have already made two good points. One is that actually GPT-3 is not new, right? So it's been available for a while. And what's new is this chat uh, GPT-3, which is basically a triumph of UX and uh, kind of the, the product people as opposed to the technologists. So the, the certainly the, the technology itself is not brand new. In fact, the CTO of Meta caused a bit of controversy the other day but in an interview where he basically said, I'm not sure what the fuss is about. This is not you know unique. There's plenty of companies who have very similar things. It's true. There's actually many other uh, chat GPT clones that you can go and use as well. Uh, so the, the first thing is, as Ritesh says, it's not particularly new. Um, also, there's GPT-4 coming, which we're told is much more powerful, which should be interesting. But what chat GPT-3, really the reason I think there's now all this buzz around it, is I think the point Joe was making, which is 
it really uh, up to now the general person didn't really kind of understand the power of AI maybe or how it would impact them. And this interface really, you know, as, as Joe said, I've shown it to people, you know, on the screen and they've just literally their jaws uh, hit the ground. And I think uh, it's a little bit like Google actually, uh, there is a whole methodology to asking it you know, the optimal way. So that there's the better you are at asking it the question, the most, the more kind of useful the answer can be. But uh, we can certainly get into, I don't know how many people have not used it, but uh, as, as Craig said, there's a lot of a kind of buzz around the fun things you can do. Uh, there's a, a, quite a bit of panic, I think, in academia, in fact, I think um, uh, we looked at uh, a statement by Nature and all of Elsevier where just the other day they've come up with a uh, basically a policy where one, you cannot quote uh, ChatGPT as an author because it has no accountability and you have to kind of declare in your paper that you've used it. Uh, most journals, in fact Elsevier is developing its own AI to make sure it can spot AI generated uh, text. So that there's kind of a bit of an arms race going on certainly there and I think schools and academia are kind of quite worried about it and thinking about the implications. Um, so the, as a basis, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, the development AI, uh, other people like Google actually have very similar products which they haven't released. Uh, we can speculate why, but they're going to. And I think for today is just to talk about that and then as as Craig says, beyond the fun stuff you could do, what are the use cases in what we do uh, in a myriad of uh, you know different rabbit holes where we can use this? And I'm sure many people in the audience will have uh, ideas and things to talk about. So that's my kind of very basic primer. So Ritesh, you know, uh, from what Amir is describing, it, it sounds like this fits into this story about these large language models. But from from a note that you just dropped in the chat, it sounds like part of the elegance isn't just having this incredible model in the back end, but an elegantly simple front end, this user interface. Exactly. And as you know, I try to be very, I described it badly, but, you know, prior to Siri and Hey Google, you did go to a website to search for things, right? It was called Google. And prior to Google, Yahoo controlled the search world for Web 1.0 until it became so complicated and cluttery. And then this startup called Google comes around and says, here, here's this one box, type your search in there, and you'll get all these great results. And everybody went whoosh over to Google. And they've dominated for a while for a long time, actually. So I think there are two, three elegances. The one elegance is in the UI. The second elegance is, and I think it was Tom or somebody in the chat who talked about no code, right? It is human. It's how I talk and I type and results come up. And the third one is the, the result set and how they're actually displaying that result set, uh, which is very, um, What's familiar, right? Um, I type in, and in my world, Finn Partners, the company and its heritage is public relations. So I, the first test I did maybe six months ago or five months ago was write a press release announcing the merger of Pfizer with Novartis, quoting the two CEOs and the lawyers. 
and it perf a perfect press release came out. So, hey, why not use that as your standard basis? If I'm in PR, I can start using that as a standard way of starting my press releases. And then you add your human piece to it. So I think that third piece, the generation of something that's valuable and familiar is the piece that's really exciting. What 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 Ritesh uh, is this machine trained on? Is it just spitting back Wikipedia to me in a very clever way, or how do I have confidence in the source that's being used here? Well, these large language models were based on all those kinds of things, right? I mean, ChatGPT says they have I don't know 150 billion little things, but the bulk of it started out with Wikipedia because it has a no enormous amount of language. Uh, uh, referenceable material, then it's gone on to other things that then help us. But you have to start as a basic starting point. And a lot of these large language models were based on these content repositories that had a large framework of knowledge that was being created in a referenceable way. Wikipedia is actually pretty good because there are auditors that audit the postings of that, and that's where you start. So a lot of the, the reference stuff you get back is from that category. From Wikipedia to begin with, mm -hmm. and then now that they're adding new models to it, wait till you see the pro version of this when it comes out, uh, particularly of Chat OpenAI's ChatGPT Pro that you'll be able to put on this side of the firewall. Now you can point it to Jane's point. If I'm a hospital, I can use the pro version and point it to the EMR, to the chart notes to the pedicle charts, to the NDC codes, to the ICD-10 codes. But it's the, the generation of the result set in the UI that's going to be very interesting. And I think that's the bit. So here, I think it's the simplicity of input. I want you to create a poem for me. The output, it comes in a familiar format of a Word document, right, in essence. Those are the two things that are the, the difference. Siri had the same thing, create a poem for me, it'll send you to a website. These guys have not only got the website, but then they've done a rendering around it. I've been yeah, thinking about that. The, the, the idea that I had, you'd say, if we unleash the AI on behind the firewall, like a pro version, right? So can it still take advantage of the open internet and the training it's had over this many years in its current form, and then unleash that behind a firewall, keep it private, and then not commingle the private stuff that goes back to the public domain. I think that's the, I'm assuming that's something that's figured out, but you know, I can't see Pfizer or any pharma company putting this into their company and then having it public, right? <laughs> I mean, but, and that but, is but, the downside. But then it, does, it, does it not yeah, get exactly smarter right. as a result? You know exactly I mean? like right. How, how does it keep training? That's the downside of the pro version when you start putting it this side of the firewall. I believe the company that will take advantage of it at the most and have why they have invested is Microsoft because Microsoft is in every enterprise on the back end, right? That's how Teams got in. That's how SharePoint got in. These tools are being provided for free as part of the infrastructure that you're using to keep you on the Microsoft platform. So why not add this as another set of tools you can put this side of the firewall? Google tried to do it with the Google Appliance many years ago. Put the Google Appliance in. We will go out and look at all of the data you have on your intranet and give you a search capability for it, knowledge workers, right? That didn't go very well. 
so because it's only you, it's your stuff. The beauty of ChatGPT on the public side is you can add anything to it. They are added anything to it. It's open API, open AI is the definition, right? For the language model that they have. Yeah. So Amir, were you gonna bring something in here? So many things from what, just a couple, um, to your initial question about was it based on, I believe actually has ingested most of the internet up to late 2021, which is why if you ask it questions about events after that, it'll tell you, you know, I'm only, I only have information up to 21. I think chat, uh, GPT-4 will, will obviously be more updated. Um, this, uh, I'm sure the pro version kind of will, will you know, come. And it's interesting because a lot of people may not realize that OpenAI is a nonprofit. And there's actually a, a, probably a historically complex deal that Microsoft's done in terms of the investment open AI, where there's a whole cascade of profits to investors. And then eventually the nonprofit will eventually, after a certain threshold, get most of the money later on. Um, but in terms of kind of the potential for this to be unleashed, you know, within uh, industries and companies. I think that's the meat that you're talking about, Craig, we can talk about. But just in general, um, it's kind of right now the consumer facing one. Um, definitely interested if anyone has questions about that. And I know usually we open up at half past, but if anyone has questions, please put your hand up. We'll bring you up uh, because I think we'll get into. Uh, Kind of the more meat of you know what does this mean if it's as a pro version if people use it within the company etc but of course there's use cases like we saw in the chat where i think it was tom was saying you know sites should be using this now to kind of look at their uh, strategies for recruitment so there are definitely uses that can be done through the public facing chat gpt right for sure beyond uh, you just you know going to the pro version for internal purposes that's exactly where I want to lead this conversation now is let's let's talk about, you know, some of some of the use cases. What are the ways that ChatGPT or other large language models are going to make a disruptive impact on clinical trials and drug development? Is this going to be knocking out protocols for me? Is it going to be fixing my protocols? Is it going to be streamlining my data capture? Where, where should we expect to see ChatGPT and all of its cousins and sibling learning models making their impact. And the reason I'll I'll generalize a little bit beyond ChatGPT is uh, Google and DeepMind have MedPalm, which is another large language model specifically tuned on medicine and healthcare. So there will be others there, although ChatGPT certainly is leading at the edge. Um, Ritesh, Joe, any takers in terms of some thought starters on use cases or spaces where you expect to see ChatGPT or other models start to make an impact in clinical trials? I mean, I, I can start with the basic stuff, right? Consent uh, or looking for trials near me. You, you, have you tried clinicaltrials.gov? Now, imagine a chat GPT interface on top of that vast array of data, right? All of a sudden, you've got a lovely user interface to help me find a clinical trial near me for my specific malady. Now, imagine chat GPT crawling 
the actual protocols that have been put together and can be coming out with a UI that is very patient-centric and patient-friendly that can be utilized by sponsors or even CROs or the decentralized trial community around that, right? So I can start saying things like, there is a massive gulf between what a patient is able to do in getting consented into a trial in general and what a physician can do because of all of the nuances of the protocol. Uh, must have this, could have this, should have this, mustn't have this, need to be included, excluded. All of those could be applied. Just take the cms.gov database, download it, standardize it, and apply ChatGPT on top of it, and you've got an immense opportunity right there alone, right? Love it. Great yeah. start. And uh, feel a great way to take advantage of that simple front end on top of lots of diverse data. Joe? Yeah, my, my mindset was in similar ways, but um, I was thinking about some of the times. So when I was in pharma, we were running projects to test like chatbots in clinical trials um, for some with some early companies that were piloting this with. And, um, you know, th th there was there was promise to it. It definitely had some struggles. Um, but it, the whole point was to go beyond the usual boilerplate text chatbots you see from like help desks and stuff where you can only ask it certain questions or click on the button or tap on the button in the, in the chatbot that only gives you certain things from a knowledge base that it has, right? And to be able to ask any question that would help you before, during, and after the clinical trial in that, in that context. And so that obviously helps you uh, find, discover, understand, you know, your fit for something, inclusion criteria, qualification, recruitment. Um, and then during the trial that would follow you through any questions you might have. And then also at the end, helping you with any questions that could be related, taking your clinical trial results into context, like all the stuff was in the mindset of none of it was, is production today, but it's all like was piloting thoughts. Right. Um, and there, I know there are multiple companies that are playing with that idea. It wasn't just, just what we were doing, but I know that, this puts a different layer of intelligence on there that becomes more accessible um, and having patients or participants have access to that in the trial could could unlock a number of things. But I know like Craig, you and I were testing ideas a couple weeks ago where it's like, ask to see if it will recommend a medication for me. Or like I asked it to find a clinical trial for my dad that has a um, blood disease and it it came back and it just said search clinical trial gov that has a number of you know results for this indication try this drug that's been approved already for this sort of thing and it said the drug name and the pharma company that had it but it never said anything like you know and, th and then i said something like uh i'm having side effects from chemotherapy you know from this trial or whatnot like what would you recommend it just recommended like holistic approaches and acupuncture that was it and so there's a lot of work that has to be done when it comes to obviously that's a that's a very sensitive area like recommending anything that's a does chat gpt become a medical device right class to medical device or something there's a whole bunch of other things to explore the, the point is is that now we're exploring it in a much more tangible way it's not just talk anymore jane i know you're keeping a track of the chat over here um, are you seeing anything uh, that we should be sure to pull into the conversation? Hmm. I think the more specific we can get to how we can use the tools effectively, 
the, the better. And also I see some really good call outs on some things to be aware of, some limitations in the models right now. So Very for fair. example, maybe, and I'm not sure that this is true, but um, Brent has indicated that the, the learning source is limited to things up to 2021. So how does that exclude things? Um, Fair point. And I guess some of that will pick up with where Amir was mentioning, keep an eye on GPT-4 and uh, continuing learning systems. Hey, Frederico, welcome to TGIFDCT. I don't think we've seen you here before. Feel free to come off mute and introduce yourself for folks. Share your question or perspective today. If you're new with uh, Clubhouse, your unmute button's in the lower right. There you go. Thank you. Um, Thanks everyone, pleasure to be on. And uh, I actually know Joe, we worked together at many dates. It's uh, great to to hear your thoughts and especially around the use cases for um, AI. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a user of um, ChatGPT. Uh, I use it mostly for, I'm, I'm a software developer. Uh, but also working in the industry for a few years. I use it to actually write code for me, you know, so um, it's, um, it's, it's a very common use case. It's one of the, one of the models that they have called Codex, uh, but there's like two other, at least two other main models. I wanted to say a couple of things because from the comments I heard, I thought it'd be just interesting to share. Uh, it, in terms of the pro topic, it is already, I think it was announced last week from Microsoft, if you use Azure or your company is using Azure, you, I mean, I think even as an individual person, you can sign up to an Azure account and you can actually try um, their service. Uh, so Azure already has an OpenAI slash ChatGPT uh, service. It's a little bit more technical. You need to get into a little bit of details, but they provide you with, some cool playgrounds to to interact um, with uh, with OpenAI. And the second thing I wanted to mention is, like, from my experience, uh, these are fantastic questions, and it's I think the the thing that this brings, which is really new, is the idea of context. So we can um, we are able to provide ChatGPT with context about the data that we want it to uh, use in order to provide recommendations or uh, whatever we want it to do and then follow up on that context add additional information and continuously refine the answers that it gives us um, and so i think these are for me like the interesting parts um, as someone that is following AI and you know has played around with models and semantic data for a while. I think it's um, extremely powerful, and I think the use cases that were mentioned here were super interesting. I was also speaking with someone today from Roche. Uh, they're looking at you know things like gener automatically generating submission documents, looking at um, getting recommendations for what kind of protocols would be more um, susceptible for approval. 
So I just wanted to add these two things that it's already available and the idea of context. And I think it'd be very interesting to see now what the industry comes up in terms of especially clinical trials to, you know, sort of tools that are already providing that context to, to an AI model and then, you know, helping us interact with this user interface that already provides the AI model with these contexts that I need, for example, protocol design or informed consent and then help me interact more intuitively with it. And, and finally, I think it's all about the intelligence of the questions that we ask the tool. Um, humans still need to have intelligence and be curious and be and ask the right questions to, 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 to be able to take value from the interaction. That's great. That's great. Thanks so much, Federico, for sharing the that that range, and in particular, you know, even from a developer perspective, about the power of of uh, of ChatGPT and coding. We're at the bottom of the hour, and for those of you who've joined us just in the last bit, uh, welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse, and we gather every Friday at TGIF DCT, Fridays 12 to noon Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific, and we cover a range of topics related to clinical trials, decentralized clinical trials, from the technical to the patient factors to business considerations and so on. If you have a topic that you'd love to see us cover in the weeks or months ahead, drop a line to myself, Amir Kalali, Jane Miles, or others. We will um, be sure to add you or your topic into our cadence. The topics come from you, and so your voice helps us to make sure that these weeks are meaningful and relevant. If you follow the Decentralized Trials Club in the upper left, you can get access to the replays for over a year's worth of content and get a preview of what's coming up in the weeks ahead. And as Amir always reminds me to remind you, be sure to check out the profiles of not only the folks who are speaking here today, but others who are here in the room with you. They share your interests in today's topic. You might find some great new connections to make here on Clubhouse, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, or wherever else you feel like being active. Well, this is the point in our hour that we open up the room. We want to hear from you. And in particular today, what I'd love to hear are some of the interesting use cases that jump to your mind. We've seen some of them in the chat. Feel free to bring those here and open up the mic and share them on the stage. And we'd also like to hear some of the flip side. What are some of the risks, the dangers, the concerns that we have to keep in our mind to get the good and mitigate the risks? Uh, one voice that I see has joined us here on the stage. I'm so glad is here. Parker Nolan, I was just checking out. You uh, have a great post on LinkedIn this week around ChatGPT applied to IRBs and ethics committees. How provocative. Come on off mute. Introduce yourself for anyone who hasn't met you. Share some of your thoughts today. Okay. Thanks, Craig, for that introduction. Um, my name is Parker Nolan. I'm the Vice President of IRB Services and Consulting for Sotero. And um, for the last decade or so, I've been working about with artificial intelligence and IRB operations. And people have always said, well, no, it's never going to happen. You can't do it, yada, yada. Well, ChatGPT was released in November, and I thought I'd play around with it and see what we could do. And a couple of things happened. We had... Um, we made up a protocol with a, with a placebo arm with tamoxifen and acetaminophen, and uh, it wrote a consent form that was completely compliant with 45 CFR 46. All of the required elements were there. 
most of the additional elements, um, and of course, some of the things that, that we didn't populate for this mock protocol, it was, it asked for us to follow up on. What's very interesting for me is the fact that um, ChatGPT is a fascinating tool. And someone earlier had said, what happens if you can tie in ChatGPT with clinicaltrials.gov? That's, that's really a great idea because it can become a tremendous support decision tool for IRBs and ethics committees. In the United States, for example, there is no regulation that stipulates that IRB members need to be human. So you could easily automate some of the functions on a back-end IRB office, especially for exempt and expedited and minimal risk research. Uh, the, I think the possibilities of using this have yet to be explored, and it would be very interesting to have a forward-thinking company approach this in a way that utilizes it but the question is going to be what happens if it makes a mistake and who's going to wear the orange jumpsuit, right? So um, it's just exciting and this is a wonderful conversation to be part of. Thank you, Craig. Thanks so much, Parker. That question of who makes a mistake, who wears the jumpsuit, right? We think about this with our, our self-driving cars. We think about this with so many areas today and certainly meaningful when we're talking about patient safety in clinical trials. Ritesh? So I don't, I think that's the caution, uh, but I don't know if it's as bad as the jumpsuit scenario. I think if we stay in, in this realm around things that add value or could benefit, like the clinicaltrials.gov thing, like the generation of consent forms, like the creation of a protocol to begin with, you're still going to need the humans of the editorial process to do something about it, to ensure that it's pointed to the right thing or whatever. So the technology on its own is exciting, and but is not the whole answer. I would submit that in my, my case around press releases, yeah, I can write a press release, but there's no human emotion or empathy or any of the things that are the nuances of that press release that a human being is still going to have to review. So I think what this will help us do in the short term, using the use cases that we're defining, is the ability for us who are in the industry to become a little bit more efficient, time-saving, or generate things that take a lot of time and a lot of review faster. Uh, but it's not the replacement of anything just yet, in my humble opinion. I would echo that, uh, Ritesh. I think that it's very important to have human oversight, um, but the the ability, I think, on the IRB side to use a tool like ChatGPT for assessing the risk-benefit ratio is phenomenal. I mean, it can really help reduce and, and maybe even get real-time ethical decisions for sponsors and get research out to the participants faster but it does need to have a human intervention, as you said. Parker, can I double click on that for a moment, please? Because you've thought about this for a long time. So when you think about um, AI decision assistance in an IRB, what does that look like when the AI tool is reviewing a protocol, for example? 
Well, I think that's a good question. Um, if we were to go way down the rabbit hole in the future, it would be able to read the protocol, read the consent form, make a recommendation for approval or not approval, um, or what things might need to be addressed in the protocol with the risk benefit ratio. I mean, that's, that's certainly down the road. I think initially what we could do uh, is use it to check for missing elements in a consent form, for example, or approve minimal risk research or small amendments to a protocol that aren't going to impact the, the patient safety, like administrative changes to a site. Uh, I really do believe that we kind of are on the cusp of using this in a way that hasn't been done before in ethical reviews. And it's kind of exciting. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it helped a lot. So it's also a very defined use case, not necessarily, um, and I'm making this up, examine whether or not this protocol has all the current standard of care benefits at a right risk tolerance with the new therapy? Kind of. I think uh, it's going to really depend on what the, the tool, what the AI tool is plugged into, right? I mean, ChatGPT specifically is not, is not contemporary, but um, that can change with future iterations. But I do think that that could possibly happen. Now, whether or not the AI tool would be able to actually make the decision to approve or disapprove a clinical research protocol, I think is a line I don't, I don't think people would want to cross, but certainly helping decide whether or not it is approvable or identifying risks that humans might not be able to see. So I really like this. And I actually think, Jane, this is actually applicable way beyond the context that Parker is giving. So having it's been probably a couple of decades since I sat on an academic uh, RRB, but I would tell you that how many other contexts can you think of where humans gather in a group and they were supposed to review the law of information? Uh, how many of those people bothered reading it? Uh, you know, so to me, it's actually really reassuring, frankly, to have uh, an AI having read it, and as, as Parker's kind of describing, at least you have a baseline that something, somebody, some machine has actually read it. You know, that's not always the case, quite honestly, sometimes, to be perfectly frank, where you wonder whether the humans had, had really taken the time to really thoroughly review all these long documents, right? So I have no problems with AI being a baseline kind of check. So you go, phew, okay, at least we know that you know, a machine has read this and there's nothing obvious missing. But then the human elements in the ultimate decision should remain human. But I can see that principle, frankly, applying to many other contexts I can think of where a bunch of humans come together and most of them haven't read the material they were supposed to. <laughs> so true, right? You know, I, I'd love to I'd love to extend this conversation though a bit on some of the, the risks here because ChatGPT is clearly like one of my smartest friends now. It passed medical school with its uh, medical school licensing. It passed the bar exam. It, uh, it passed uh, the Wharton Business School's hardest exams. It passed with like a C, right, Ritesh? It, it was a low pass, but it's the old joke, right? You know what you call the person who graduated last in their class from medical school, doctor. So it passed. 
But there's some risk here, right? And we see it already in the academic community concerned with students in a position to create fabulous papers to submit based on fraud. We see this concern in other sectors. What are some of those concerns that, that we need to be cognizant of? Is this an easy future for uh, nefarious investigators to, um, uh, to submit false data on patients? Are there fraud risks that patients could easily be fabricated in ways that could spoof all of our great detection tools? Is this a way for nefarious research sponsors, or I won't even call them research sponsors, nefarious companies to prepare false data to submit to the regulatory authorities that look so real that anybody could be tricked by this? Uh, what are our concerns and how do we create controls around them? Ritesh, do you want to get us going there? Stated, you know, it depends on what it's pointing to. So, you know, you've got that combination, uh, it was mentioned in the chat earlier, of large language model pools like Wikipedia, and then that combination of robots and crawlers that are going out there and updating it. So, the, 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 this is still machines, guys, right? So, you can point this thing to a nefarious data set that could do something. So there is an ethical issue here around, sorry, the editorial issue around when you create a result set from ChatGPT from the UI, where is that data coming from? And who has looked at that to make sure it's credible? And this is why I think one of the things that they've decided to do, and they've done a good job, by the way, uh, Open API folks have done a really good job of making sure that they keep it as as uh, as credible as possible, but it's never the case, right? Robots can go look at things and decide. So you can program the robot to pro look at it and say, is this credible or not, based on sets of parameters. Has it been published somewhere? Is there a reference somewhere? All the things that we do as a human mind that Amir would do when he's looking at a a piece of you know research that's been put into JAMA and saying, right, who are the guys who wrote it? Has it been referenced anywhere? Are these guys credible doctors? All of those things. I think we're going to have to go through the same process here. It's the only way to make sure that the content that is being connected to for the result set is a credible piece of content. But to Parker's point, you could create a whole submission thing around this. How do you know where the data came from? Who are the people who wrote it? Is it credible? I don't know the answer to that yet. And I don't know how, apart from creating the algorithm and the robots that go through it, to do their best to make sure that this is a credible piece of content. I don't know the answer to how you manage that at the moment, Craig. Well, you know, as a, I, I teach a course and, and in my course, the uh, the students, when they submit a paper, have to submit it through a, uh, a, a checking engine to, to look for plagiarism. Um, are we going to have to create an ecosystem of, of anti-GPT that is able to detect for fraud for everything we're writing today? Or, or Ritesh, do those types of machines already exist that are for, for every chat GPT derived uh, content, there's a machine that's detecting if it actually was written by a human or a machine? There is, by the way. And in fact, if you look, it's really funny. There's ads already for AI um, 
machines that you take GPT-3, put that through the detector, it'll tell you this was likely to be AI generated. You put it in this new one and you say rephrase and it rephrases it and you put it back into the AI detector and it says likely to be human. So there's already that arms race going on. It will be an arms race, guys. I firmly believe, you know, it's like, no, it, it's all about human ingenuity, right? And there will be people who will define how I can use this to do this. And there'll be other people that will define, I can check it to make sure you did it the way you did. And it'll keep going. So I think that to your question, succinctly answered is, yes, there'll be an arms race of people who will figure out ways to check in. There'll be arms race of people who figure out how to connect to it. Hey Jane, you are usually a, a fabulous voice of reason. Are there uh, are there concerns that you have around this technology right now, or are you mostly on the enthusiastic, curious side? Oh, definitely on the enthusiastic, curious side, and trying to understand what <laughs> what I need to know to overcome the objections of people who are more hesitant. So I'm hearing that there are a lot of models built in already. I'm also hearing much like. Um, for example, looking at radiographs, the tool can do the first pass review. The human will still need to make decisions. And I think that's a message that maybe will help people get more comfortable. Hey, I'm psyched to see uh, Doug Bain join us over here. Doug, you always have a great perspective on all cutting edge technology with a finger on the pulse. Introduce yourself if anyone hasn't met you. Share your thoughts on today's topic. Hey guys, um, yeah, I'm Doug Bain. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at a CRO called KCR. Um, yeah, very interesting discussion. Um, I, I have to say I haven't spent as long with ChatGPT as maybe some of you guys, um, but it, it's interesting. And the, the areas where I'm seeing it of of specific interest, if you know, some of you guys were familiar with, um, you know, doctor support systems where you feed in certain information about a patient and it will give suggestions based on, uh, you know, statistics on data. Um, now, where chat GPT is coming in is it's converting that dialogue into something increasingly closer to the dialogue that the patient would have with the doctor directly. Um, so I think we're going to see really the next iteration of patient support coming around where increasingly you're saying, actually, the GP or the doctor's not really adding a lot of value <laughs> because the database of knowledge that ChatGPT can potentially pull from is going to be larger than any doctor can ever consume themselves. Um, so it'll be more trying to uh, supplement the GP, chat GPT user interface with doctors rather than actually doctors vetoing what chat GPT might say in the end. That's where I see that going. Um, as far as as whether we can detect it, I, I don't think that's going to be possible. I think it's already been mentioned. So this, this idea that you can run it through uh, algorithms to say whether that is created by a chat GPT engine or whether it's created by a human being. I think that that game's over already. I think that's that's lost. We're not going to be able to to satisfy that. And we just have to accept that it's going to be there. People are going to use it and just move forward, I'm afraid. 
Well, that is a future that will be interesting for us to navigate, right? As these tools are so democratized and uh, the the uh, output so compelling. Hey, Marianne, it's great to see you here. We haven't seen you in a while. Introduce yourself if anyone hasn't connected and share your thoughts on today's topic. Uh, well, first off, so much for uh, always creating a space and a platform for us to talk about relevant and cutting edge uh, trends in the industry. Uh, it's really interesting. I heard about ChatGPT um, over the holidays from my cousin that came over from Europe and saying how he's using this in his research and he was finishing his uh, dissertation. He was saying that this is clearly provided for um, academic and research students, um, basically a tool to go through a lot of content. And if you think about the proliferation of new, new data being generated, it's actually about time that we have a tool and an enabler that can allow us to um, really accelerate access to information. I think where the key is, um, maybe it'll be the leaders across it, the voices of, of Clubhouse, is how we create the standards of using ChatGPT. I mean, right now, this is a free version. We're leveraging it to just even test out use cases. Uh, but certainly, like all technologies and like all uh, solutions that help us automate administrative topics and, and ta tasks and activities, this now creates another engine for us in terms of how we want to be able to leverage information in a, in a work stream. Um, I think we uh, also have an opportunity to confirm and feed the machine right on what is uh, evidence and information that we want to continue to share. So I think quite frankly, again, it's it's an enabler an enabler for us to, to access information um, at an accelerated rate, but also figuring out those use cases in clinical trial by role. I think as, as, as leaders in, in various uh, uh, organizations that many of us represent, uh, it may end up being a tool that we can at least see what's out there. And again, it'll be a matter of time where we may have to potentially license this tool to see how we could use it in more of a practical setting. So I think that we're still early days in exploratory, but certainly an area to validate sources of the data and uh, ensuring we could use it in practical purposes. Amir, I, I saw you off mute there. I thought maybe you were jumping in. Um, you know, I was actually going to comment a little bit also on what Doug was talking about. So, you know, um, I think Coastler famously going to kind of a bit of controversy, kind of trying to say AI was going to replace doctors. And his point was kind of AI is better than your mediocre doctor. And also, you know, whether in places where people don't have access to doctors, maybe. I think, you know, what Doug was kind of hinting at was kind of where is the potential there uh, you know, for an AI to really help, right? That's one. Uh, the other thing that we haven't mentioned was if you look at other industries, whether it's marketing people or others, half the TikToks are people worrying about the fact that they're going to lose their jobs or that they can sack half their employees because of this. Kind of, It's kind of funny that they're kind of immediately jumping to that and worrying about it. But uh, I think it's interesting. I think in clinical research, we already have a massive shortage of uh, people. So to me, I'm not, although I'm sure people are thinking about it, we haven't mentioned it in this conversation. It seems to me a lot of the things we talked about would maybe you know take out the more tedious the more um sort of basic stuff and allow people to really you know um, do more higher end stuff uh, so i don't know what people think about that but i'm sure people will worry about that and think is this going to 
you know, replace, you know, either some people or maybe some outsourced services. So that that's something that was crossing my mind when Doug was mentioning this sort of, you know, towards it. Well, we've talked before about the uh, the challenges in the workforce and uh, the challenges both in terms of finding talent to fill new opportunities and to grow them and for challenges today in the very tenuous environment with the economic conditions. So it is in interesting. Uh, it's always on people's minds around the role of AI displacing people. Uh, other thoughts on the, on the panel on as we're thinking about the future impact of ChatGPT and all these approaches, Ritesh? I would encourage us to do it in two sections, the short term and the medium term, because we don't know what the long term is going to be, particularly as they release GPT-4, as people like Microsoft and Google bring out their own versions, that sort of thing, right? So short term, there are interesting use cases that the decentralized trial communities could do straight away uh, using this technology. There's an open API infrastructure already in place. So how do you connect it to the existing DCT infrastructure and do things like consent, approvals, protocol deviations? You know, take. To, I would encourage us all to maybe look at those things that either don't get a trial up and running can cause issues within the trial itself or can get us into becoming more efficient and more knowledgeable and take those use cases and apply them to chat GPT and see how they work and help us do things better, right? Protocol definition, for example, checking, consent forms, that's, you know, that sort of thing. I think medium term, there is a big opportunity to use this for things like standard of care, finding patients and enabling patients to find trials that meet their specific criterias, because this UI can really put into patient speak the scientific stuff that we put into protocols, inclusion, exclusion criteria, things like that. I think that's the medium term thing. So that's what I would encourage us to do. Short term, there are probably 10 use cases that this community could come up with and that the DCT, you know, it, uh, companies that are out there could deploy very, very quickly to make things better. Joe, thoughts there in terms of playing the futurist here? Uh, the future. I said that talking. Um, there are so many ways this would go. Um, <laughs> the, the, this morning I asked ChatGPT, are you Skynet? And it said, no. And then I said, that's something Skynet would say. Um, I, don't, I don't think that our AI overlords are going to harm us anytime soon. I think that it's obviously good for science fiction and always something to think about. But I do think that the, the good of this is probably higher than the bad. I, I think there's a number of ways we need to get there, um, both how this is created and how it's scaled. Um, but the places we can get to are all ideas that I think we all have to, as a community, say, well, why not? Why can't that happen? That's how these ideas start, right? And challenge the status quo. In the in the chat, um, the, the clubhouse chat here, we were throwing ideas around, and I think it was just mentioned um, by Ritesh and others that you know j jobs could be at stake. Well, yeah, that's the point. The whole point is these tasks shouldn't be done by humans in a way. You think clinical data management is going to stay the way it was? 20 years ago, after implementing technology, now half those things are outsourced to India, and the rest of it will be outsourced by machines 
that will now turn the people into a role that is actually more useful for their time, for their intellect and all that, right? It's, it's turning them into clinical data scientists in a way, right? And this was something the SCDM Innovation Committee was talking about in 2016. Um, and they put a paper out on how the roles of the industry, the people need to change and be retrained for, for a new way. So these technologies, we've been doing this for 20 years in different iterations from, from paper to electronic, from on-premise to the cloud. And now this, I think the third wave of, of digital transformation in our industry, at least in the past 20 years, which is now we have all this data in the cloud. What do we do with it? And how can we use it, it to our advantage? How can we take the clinical trials of the past to better the clinical trials of the future in all ways, in science, in operations, in the way we push it out. This model of natural language models and chats is only one example of what this thing can do when unleashed on big data sets to be turned into actual actionable insights. Hey, Doug, we have just two minutes left. I saw you had come off mute. I think you had a, a last word here. Yeah, I think one of the, the risks is it does take our way or need to think human beings. If you think about Google Maps, how many people can really map from A to B in the same way they could do maybe 10 years ago? Um, there is a risk that we will lose the ability to reason because uh, going beyond just Googling for something, it will actually tell us the answer uh, already made up in the way that we don't need to go through the effort. So that's a risk, I'm afraid. I don't want to be doom and gloom, but <laughs> I think that's going to happen. You mean, Doug, like we used to remember people's phone numbers, but we don't anymore because it's programmed. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think, uh, I personally think, you know, if I didn't have Google Maps to get from A to B, I think I'd go, hmm, how do I get from A to B? You know, we just rely on on not exercising our brain to do certain things. Um, and with ChatGPT, the sort of process we follow today where we yeah. search for an article in Google, uh, bring that together together with another 10 articles and then boil that down into something we write ourselves, we don't need to do that anymore. And that will reduce that, that will reduce the exercise we have, mental exercise we have to you know continue the, the evolution of the human brain. Well, with that, I think I'm going to go fire up and uh, watch Wally -E on Disney and get a reminder of the future we all have in store. Exactly what but, I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> That's a great image. <laughs> well, short of that, thank you so much uh, to uh, Joe and uh, to Ritesh for joining today and helping to kick off this conversation with Amir, myself, and Jane, uh, Frederico, Parker, Doug, Marianne, thanks so much for coming on stage, sharing some experience and perspective here. We will regroup next week talking about sensors and wearables and unmet needs there as it relates to our trials. And then we'll come back again the week after and start to talk about some best practices in DCT and how can we share those. If you have a topic, let us know. Otherwise, have a fabulous weekend. Thanks, everybody.